Welcome to Prairie Design Lab. And today we tackle the challenges of urbanism through the eyes of two deep thinkers and practitioners in the Winnipeg urban environment. Prairie Design Lab comes to you from the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba. I'm Terry McLeod, and we're calling this episode Urbanism with the subtitle Then, Now, and Next. I'm joined by two guests with extensive resumes, very connected to Winnipeg urbanism. Let me tell you about them. David Witte was the Dean of Architecture at the University of Manitoba from 2001 through 2009. He was the founding chair of Winnipeg's Urban Design Advisory Committee, a senior planner with the province of Manitoba, the founding chair of the Canadian Healthy Communities Committee. He had a planning practice in Winnipeg for 20 years with the late landscape architect Gary Hilderman. Witte was most recently the Provo and Vice President Academic of Vancouver Island University in Nanaimo, BC from 2010 to 2018. In 2019, he was appointed as the university's Senior Fellow Urban Design Master of Community Planning. He has worked in urban design across the country and overseas, including the Middle East and Africa. He's based in Basel, Switzerland today. Hello, David Witte. And Glenn Murray is also with us. He was on the Winnipeg scene in municipal politics since 1989 and served three terms as a city councillor. In 1998, he was elected mayor and served until 2004. He subsequently moved to Toronto and was elected as a Liberal member of Ontario's provincial legislature. He served in five different cabinet posts as the MPP for Toronto Centre from 2010 until he resigned in 2017. He has been involved in a number of academic pursuits as well. Murray moved back to Winnipeg three years ago, where he is currently the co-owner of an urban planning company. He's in Toronto at the moment. Hello, Glenn Murray. Hello, Terry. The subtitle of this episode is Winnipeg, Then, Now, and Next. Can I begin by asking each of you to reflect on the contrast between Winnipeg, then, and now? In what ways have you seen this city change since you began to engage in civic life here? Maybe I can jump in. I moved to Winnipeg in the early 70s from Ontario. And the central business district, as we used to call it from a planning geography perspective, right? There were these concentric circles around downtowns and, and the central business district was the place where everything happened. And then, of course, over time and with further subdivisions and suburbia development, that just came apart. So when I moved to Winnipeg, the downtown was still bit of a central business district, still fairly vibrant. The Bay was the place to go and shop. And I can remember the streets being busy. And I came from a smaller town in Ontario and I went, wow, this is big city living. I love it. This is great. And then over time, right, it just started to erode. Gary and I had our offices downtown, always did. And so ended up driving in like most people working during the day and driving home at night uh, out of the city center. And so I saw it go through this evolution from fairly good vibrancy to uh, not so to in fact uh, when Glenn became mayor my view he turned it around and I had the privilege of actually working with Glenn and brainstorming on some of these ideas and certainly uh, the downtown arena which at the time was quite controversial I still believe was the right thing to do and uh, at the time advocated for it and and uh, so much of the waterfront development as well it's there's been many changes, and so I've seen some really positive things happen for the downtown. And I'm pleased to say that I was involved in some of those ideas back when I was dean. 
So, Glenn, since you got involved in civic life, in what way have you seen the city change? I've seen it gone through waves. I I moved there in the late 80s. I guess about a decade after David did. And I've been away and I've gone back a few years ago and I've seen a lot of changes since. Watching the absolute destruction of the downtown retail community was quite educational and tragic at the same time. I mean, Winnipeg did things that no one else did and some things that other people were doing that was really kind of dumb. The building of a major regional retail mall four kilometers down Portage Avenue from the Bay and Eaton's in a city that was going through, uh, whose population was either stagnating or declining for much of that period of time, really subdivided the retail base of the city from amongst two large department stores on Portage Avenue to four, four kilometers apart. You're um, talking about Polo Park, of course. Polo Park, yes. Well, I, I sort of call them the three Ps of the downtown retail apocalypse. This, the second was a closure of Portage Bay to pedestrians. That you, you can almost mark the decline in street-level retail from those two events. The construction of Portage Place, which was, I think, the 26th or 27 of what were 32 downtown malls, the only one that still works is uh, Eaton Place in, in Toronto, sucked up so much of what was left of this downtown retail. You had like Reitman's type dress stores in this mall uh, competing not only with an already subdivided retail base, but with Clifford's. And what came out of it is Clifford's and most of the small street level retailers that were local disappeared. They couldn't compete with what was in the mall. And as soon as the lease requirements for those retailers that were in the mall were over, they were quite happy just to abandon their downtown store to keep their stores at Safe Hotel and Polo Park. Um, so those three things, Portage Place, Polo Park, and the closure of Portage of Maine, with no real planning, with no understanding that we were massively over-retailing, there was no absorption rate, that shopping malls were failed concepts in downtown renewal, and we were one of the last into it. That, that left a mark. And I think everything that's happened, good or bad, since then has been uh, an attempt to reframe downtown as a creative information technology industry base, to be cultural, sports, and entertainment, and to be educational, and to move, try to really concentrate those kinds of activities. When it's been done well, it's been very successful, and when it's been done badly, it's opened up a whole set of new holes in the downtown. So it's a very incomplete downtown right now. And I think those waves have, have happened. The last 10 years, 15 years have been particularly brutal, I think. Can I ask the two of you, who was making these decisions that got us into a city somewhat scattered in terms of retail to a virtually empty downtown? How did that happen? Terry, if you look at the trend across North America, it was a North American trend. The big Eastern cities were able to control it a bit more just because of the massive downtown populations. And so there was always this vibrancy and resiliency built in because they had built significant residential accommodation. So there were always Toronto, Montreal, and you think of some of the big American Eastern cities, strong downtowns because they have large populations, much like where I'm sitting here in Basel in Switzerland, where people live adjacent to and in the downtown in significant numbers. Winnipeg just followed that trend. And when the growth did start, it was suburban growth. And it was all about building more roads and more cars and more single-family housing. And that has been a real issue for many of our downtowns, and Winnipeg in particular. Scattered the population, and and through that, scattered commercial development and led to more development. And the reality is, that was the trend, and so Winnipeg was following that trend. And when I moved to Winnipeg, the city had a personality issue, and over time, it got worse. 
and just feeling sorry for itself and, and always thought it was kind of a second class big city and didn't really think of itself as a big city. And so when there was some new trend like uh, mall development or more suburban development, it followed along with other cities and, and rather than perhaps pausing and reflecting on how can it be done differently, Winnipeg just followed the trend. Planners, politicians, uh, developers, they just were thinking they were doing the right thing, but it wasn't. Glenn, did you feel that David Woody's talking to you here about decisions that you made, or are we talking about other politicians? I would hope not about other politicians, but I don't think anyone's guilt-free. But I mean, it's, it's interesting because if you look at how most downtowns are developing outside of the heavy development-driven downtowns, like Toronto, uh, you don't have to do much to attract development. In most countries, London and the UK, you can pick up one or two or a handful of cities where all of the development is concentrating in these super agglomerated cities. And to all the mid, mid large size cities in the country, they're struggling to find and attract development. Some cities have done extraordinarily well at it. And Winnipeg has done some of the best and worst things. So the Shed District now, which has building about its 11th or 12th building with the Wawanisa head office. This is a dedicated district that runs from the convention center on sort of St. Mary in, in York, all the way up to just north of Portage Avenue. There's True North Tower residential, Office Tower, there's Sutton Place Hotel and Residences, there's the Old Met Restoration, there's the Stantec Office Building, the Wawanisa Office Building, the Alt Hotel, the Glass House, um, the Arena. I mean, there's about a dozen buildings there and building restorations that have created a, you know, a super cluster of with big public squares and public places that's been very successful. But that was started 20 years ago when I was mayor, and it was an intentionally planned development where amenities were put place. And that was supposed to continue to places like Portage and Maine, where east of Portage Avenue, there's a massive amount of parking lots, enough to build a residential community of probably 10, 15,000 people could easily be built in, you know, in what are probably about 10 square blocks of, uh, of surface parking. Then there was Waterfront Drive, which was very successful. Um, it was an infill street. It was a lot of what was city-owned land, it was, it was modeled out to say, what would happen if you put this kind of housing development and mixed-use development here? And we found out that for about $9 million worth of infrastructure, we got about $80 million in net new taxes within a few years that came from that development. And the other one was Red River College and that whole innovation campus, which has now got uh, an indigenous innovation center, the Patterson Schools. I mean, it's a, it's a brilliant, beautiful, successful campus. So those three precinct strategies were, were the uplifted value of those investments was proven to exceed what the city costs would be, not only started to create the commercial residential population that downtown so badly needed, then it changed. And I think it's, it's changed. And the two big projects, and it came somewhere to between 400 and $500 million that came after that, that, that strategy was very successful, was completely abandoned. And the city started getting involved in some very bizarre kinds of investments. The first one was spending over $200 million, $220 million on trying to change the post office into a police station. Um, that probably cost way more money than all of the precinct projects put together and delivered an expensive structural cost, no net new revenue, and a fiscal problem for the city. Then the Israeli freeway came up for renewal and renovation. And again, significantly about $200 million was spent on that. But it was designed in a way that actually made it like a combination between one of the worst freeways and the Berlin Wall. And it reinforced the destruction of property values and development opportunities all along that. And it continued to concentrate traffic 
you know, we turned Main Street and Portage Avenue, quite literally starting in the late 50s, when we scrapped our streetcars, we started to change, turn our, our high streets into highways. So they became hard to cross, they were not good frontages for commercial and residential development. And then the Israeli freeway sort of just flowed huge of 40,000 cars in there. We kept on telling everyone we weren't going to be build freeways in Winnipeg, but then we turned most of our downtown urban high streets into freeways and made them hard to cross. And, and that was just reinforced by the closure of Portage Maine. And those two things, that shift from precinct, mixed-use development, intensification, concentrated precinct development, where you were creating beachheads um, and clusters of development that were successful and redesigning streets to be walkable and to be good frontages for residential and commercial was replaced by large stupid public projects that made no sense, cost lots of money and were badly done. And the continuing sort of highification of Winnipeg's urban core streets. And I think those two things, and now there's an election going on in the city and obviously a debate emerging over where do we go from here? Because we've had two very starkly different histories over the last 10 years. And then the 10 years before that were quite different. David Whitty, you worked for many years in urban planning in Winnipeg and you were a person of some influence. What effect did your approach to planning have on urban development in Winnipeg? Can you point to what you see as successes of your approach? One was actually simple as it is, is is investing in what you believe in. So we had our office building. It was the first on the east side of Main Street um, down on Bannatyne that was filled with pigeons Michael Dechter, actually, and his brother and some others, a bunch of us got together and purchased it and turned it into office space. Number 10's there. That's where our office was, Hillary and Whitty, and still there now. I, you know, I'm kind of proud of that. You just I kind of walk the talk thing, right? I think that's important. And so from an urban planning point of view, believe that we should be working in the downtown, investing in the downtown and take an old warehouse building and turn it into offices and super successful. The Forks, for instance, was a project out of our office. I can remember working in the early 70s going on that site. And when it was all rail yard, we did a project for provincial and federal governments on the Red and Sandwine Rivers Tourism Recreation Study. And out of that, the idea came to actually set aside that area for urban redevelopment. And there it is today. And that was one small idea that I'd certainly... Um, helped contribute to and, and certainly wrote a report and presented it to Premier Schreier at the time, actually, in his cabinet. And you know, there was certainly influence there. A lot of our work, though, from the landscape perspective, was across much of the region as well, and not so much in downtown Winnipeg, because quite honestly, there wasn't much happening in downtown Winnipeg in the 70s. If anything was created, it tended to be more parking lots than buildings. There was a really stagnant time. I recall that quite vividly. And when I went back in, in 2001 to be dean, there were some changes, in, and not because Glenn's in this program, but the reality is that he had a huge influence, in my view, on creating dialogue and interest and vision. And Glenn, you remember you and I used to go to um, have, have cinnamon buns and coffee at um, Bread and Circuses mm-hmm. and in the morning and chat, right? And Harry Finnegan would join us sometimes. You remember those days, right? And we yeah. talk about some of this stuff. And uh, 
I saw a real change in that first decade in 2000 on and a lot of good development happening. My concern though, is that in the absence of strong residential population in the downtown, that you cannot have the kind of energy and vibrancy and community building that's required to create a a full-on vibrant downtown. And you need, and Winnipeg needs 40,000 people living in the downtown. Waterfront Drive is considered to be a great success. I mean, the idea that you would spend a million dollars on a unit in downtown Winnipeg years ago was completely unheard of. But what do we need to do to get people living downtown? Well, I think Waterfront Drive has been a huge success because it didn't just, the, the roadway in the park, which, this is, it was a result of the first really value planning kind of thing we did. We looked at what did you need to do, not just to create housing, because you know Dave talked about some of the successes of the partnership with Michael Dechter. It wasn't the first project to come along. And Dave and people in the private sector and the architecture community, he and Gary and others had really pushed some very successful projects. But, but you needed to change the infrastructure and you needed to change the dynamics and the economics of place um, and the quality of place so that residential populations would be attracted to it. Because you remember, well, Waterfront Drive wasn't just neutral. There were no, all the streets dead-ended. It was a contaminated, uh, dirty waterfront with industrial waste and PCBs and creosote. The steam plant had been closed down. 12 buildings had lost their heating and cooling. And the vacancy rate in that area was 68%. So people could write off half of their investments against their business and property taxes. Then they could go back and get take part of those tax credits and turn them into grants. So it created a pool of capital and an incentive to redevelop buildings in that area. Those incentives have, been, have really been pretty absent since the core area initiatives had wrapped up where federal dollars were in play. But the, the development of the street all the way up to Higgins was so successful that one, that even for the first round of, of development, you needed the incentives. After that, you didn't. But the outcome wasn't just the street and the park and, and the development. It was a completely changed perception. This area went from being a don't go there, don't hang out there, dead zone, to one of the most desirable places to develop. And that was sort of the, you know, well, the outputs were the buildings in the park and the first round of development. The outcome was a complete shift in the economics and perception of the place that development happened. The same thing happened with Red River. And I think the same thing has happened with the Shed District. So I think the lessons learned to answer your question really succinctly, Terry, is you need to declare where you want housing. So I'm I'm just finishing a project that I've been working on, funded mostly by the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, where we've identified along the lines that David quite accurately suggested is you need about 40,000 people living downtown. We found five major infill development areas where you could reasonably easily accommodate about 25,000 people in a mixture of market and affordable housing. We sort of looked very much like we approached Waterfront Drive and found five other precincts within the exchange district. That report will be public in a few weeks. And when we roll it out, it will be basically saying, here's to the city what you have to do to make development welcome. Here's what you have to do to accommodate the underserved communities there. Here's what you have to do to make sure that housing is market savvy that will attract the, the rapidly growing workforce. It's 40,000 people who work between creative and IT and technology design industries down there. You have two of the largest clusters. Not all those people work in the exchange district but those clusters are concentrated there. So you, you do have a market housing community, but you've got to remove a whole bunch of the barriers. So you've got to do that. And we haven't done that in 20 years. When this report comes out, it'll be the first time that we've actually done what we did that was so successful before. This is what, you know, people almost have amnesia about their own successes. We we do things really well in the city. We did really great things at the Forks. I mean, Udena, which was a project that was inspired out of Gary and, um, and David's firm. But we did things really well. And then we, then we stopped doing them. And 
we default to doing really stupid things. It, it amazes me how much memory loss we have and how we don't seem to consistently learn from our own history in the city. Because we've done some of the very best things in Winnipeg nationally. I think some of the most exciting from the core initiatives and some of the stuff that David and I were involved in, I think, were, was just groundbreaking stuff and very successful. And then we've done some of the worst things. I mean, just some of the you know, closing Portage in Maine, putting a, that whole post office thing. They were just, and it wasn't just that it was a stupid thing. It just consumed hundreds of millions of dollars in the opportunity costs that, especially when the state of repair in the downtown is so bad. I mean, one of, you know, there's two, three big problems. One, there isn't enough people downtown and there isn't the infrastructure and the organization and the leadership in the public or private sector to deliver the residential population, though I think there's a demand for it. The downtown is becoming worse and worse connected. I mean, the, the Esplanade Riel and some of the connections were very important, but most Try to get from the east side of Main Street to the west side of Main Street or across Portage Avenue. It's just it's just a incredibly disconnected downtown. And Ken Greenberg pointed that out in the 90s when he did his plan for the downtown. And only about half of the things that he recommended ever got there. And the other thing is just bad maintenance. I mean, the city has cut maintenance dollars that the entire urban environment and public spaces down there look like hell. They're degraded, they're, they're worse now than they ever have been. And, you know, Everything's broken, curbs, bicycle racks, trees cut down. The entire environment has just been abandoned. Tens of millions and tens of millions of dollars of building a great public realm has just been left to rot. So we talked about some of the successes here, but David Whitty, when you look at the less than successful ventures, who's responsible for this? How did we get to this kind of a situation? I'm not sure you can point fingers per se. I think the city has to take collective responsibility. I really believe that. The easy way out is to not go downtown. The easy way out is to shop in, in suburban malls and life's good. And But I think if we don't take the collective responsibility, we don't own these problems. When I look at Winnipeg, I think about many of the other cities in Western Canada. You know, there's lots of similarity there. And it relates to, I just call it rolling across the land. It's easy to roll across the land and build more roads and more houses and more shopping malls and, and keep on rolling. And until we say enough is enough, until we say no more sprawl, until we say we're going to build only in areas that are already developed, until we say that, we one, will never address climate change, simply, period. And two, we will just get more of the same. So collectively, we have to say life can be better. Life can be like a Basel, you know, like right outside here. You know, 7,000 people per square kilometer, and, it's, and that's not a high density for a city, actually. Um, but it's vibrant, vibrant all the time. I, it, yeah, I get really frustrated because the answers are really complicated. There's no question about that. But until there's a collective will, rests not with some planners or rests with some developers or, or rests with some politicians. There is not a collective will in the city to change it to do better. That's, in my view, a real issue. I think city council and the provincial government bear a lot of the responsibility for some of its greatest successes and greatest failures. I mean, the Forks was very smart. I think putting residential and commercial at the Forks going head to head in competition with the exchange district and the downtown retail core is not a good idea. The Forks was set up to be the place you could build great sports, entertainment, cultural facilities, museum, the baseball park, skateboard park, you know, the children's like, it, it's it's a campus, it's a cultural campus. It's it's an odd open place where you, where you can put these unusually shaped buildings that don't fit well into a grid pattern street system. But you know, these things happen with council votes. I mean, the entire police station debacle was a council vote. People don't realize how close those things come. Um, 
I and Greg Selinger worked very hard to follow up on some of the work that Dave Woody did and people like Jay Cap and Lloyd Axworthy because we had an interesting consistently see on the forks, even when governments changed. We, we went to buy the 18 acres where the Human Rights Museum and the baseball park is now sitting because that was still owned by CM. That passed by council by one vote and it nearly didn't pass. And I've often said to myself, you know, we won that by one vote. And I think Bill Norrie cast what was a tie-breaking vote. Can you imagine if we hadn't bought that? You know, we never completed the forks and that had never moved forward. Can you imagine if the votes, you know, which were very close recently on opening Portage and Maine to pedestrians, for every problem, there's an exciting opportunity. So, you know, there are only about four or 5,000 people. The area I'm working in is not the entire downtown. It's the exchange district. So it's most of what's north of Portage Avenue. We go all the way up to the CPR station. Line. What, what was interesting to discover, which kind of surprised me, because numbers with COVID have been a little bit rough, but we've, we aggregated about seven private and public sector sources for employment. In that study area, which is sort of the exchange district and some of the adjacent areas, there are somewhere around 17 to 20,000 people working down there in a whole range of exciting jobs from grain and finance to mostly information technology. But there's less than 4,000 people living in that area. And the job housing ratio, which is so important to a successful downtown, is great. Now, a lot of cities have seen their employment base collapse in their downtown. Winnipeg doesn't. Winnipeg has this massive employment base. In the exchange district and adjacent neighborhoods alone, it's 17 to 20,000 people. That should make it very easy to build up your housing when you've got so much undeveloped land and so much surface parking lot. So we both we, we have an opportunity with a huge downtown employment base. It's fairly affluent, interestingly. We have an opportunity with so much land that's open parking lot that's undeveloped, probably about 25, 30% of it. And we have the ability to put residential infill down there. So all the things work. It's what's missing is, is leadership and a few votes at council and some commitment from the province. Those are not hard things to do, but these things don't happen usually not because of nefarious plots or things like that, but just because I think what David said, you follow trends, you don't do your homework, you don't realize whether that's going to actually work. You don't understand the uniqueness of the environment you're in and how authentic it is, how people live together, how, how the area works, so your interventions can be ham-fisted. When you do your homework and you actually do this kind of analysis that was done on the three, you know, district projects that work so well, they work and they've always worked. I mean, we've had almost 100% Forks work, Waterford Drive work, Red River Campus work, the Shed District work. When we didn't do those things, they didn't work. And it's pretty black and white. It's actually not that complicated in some ways. It's just a lot of work. David, it seems though that the citizens of Winnipeg have bought into the sprawling suburban city model. People want front lawns. They want to be out of the downtown. Why don't people live downtown in greater numbers? Well, first of all, you have to have a place to live. I mean, it's this chicken and egg thing, isn't it? And the vacant parking lots in the downtown 100 years ago were filled with houses, right? We've taken a lot of that away and made more money off parking lots than if they were housing than through the, the 60s and 70s. I think it's not about building cities that look like European cities, but it is about recognizing that one can lead a very vibrant in a different kind of residential setting. It doesn't have to be suburban, large lot, single family. And in fact, the reality is single families had its day. It's had its day. Many American cities now, single family zoning doesn't exist anymore. They pulled it off the books. California's, if they haven't already, have a state law forbidding single family dwelling. Where I'm sitting here in Basel, again, sitting in a complex where lots of kids play out. It's a calm street, so kids can play in the street. 
cars just come through very rarely. The building backs onto a central courtyard. The kids play there. Families are increasing in downtown Basel. Numbers higher than, than family household formation in, in Switzerland. Um, if, if people want to live here and they want to live here because it's vibrant, uh, lots of places to, to, to shop and restaurants and, and kids, kids going to school. It's just vibrant. It's a whole different kind of city living. And I think the problem in North America and Canada and Winnipeg is that people are used to the single family housing model. It's not a great model for community building and it's not a great model to deal with the issues around climate change. And it's a model that consumes agricultural land, you go on and on and on and on. We need to change our view of urban lifestyle and living and, and we need to break the mold. And I said earlier, and I'll say it again, we just have to stop sprawl and we have to have any new residential development occur in existing developed areas. And that will address affordability. There's all kinds of stuff coming out on affordability now that speaks to that very issue. Single family housing is failing us from an affordability perspective. I think downtown housing's worked. I mean, you know, those those what were supposed to be middle-class, mid-price uh, condominiums and apartments that went on Waterfront Drive are now a million dollars, eight, seven, eight. I mean, you know, they are literally high-rise prices in downtown Toronto equivalent. Myself and Dave, Mike Scatliff, uh, Anita, standing a whole bunch of us that were involved in that would have slapped ourselves silly if we ever thought we'd have billion-dollar condos down there. <laughs> and the problem is, is, is that it basically continued to be developed, but... The city didn't continue to put in roads. It didn't continue to put in services, even though it was highly profitable for them to do it. They were getting, you know, eight, nine, ten dollars back in new tax revenue for every dollar they were putting out in infrastructure. So if you just go south of uh, where the Wellington West Capitol building was built at the corner of Valentine and uh, Dermot, you're into about one, two, three, four, five, six, eight solid blocks, two to three blocks wide of surface parking. That is an ideal. You're, you're right across from the Human Rights Museum, the baseball park. You're three blocks away from the arena entertainment complex. You're walking distance from Red River College. And the entire incredible arts community that exists, you know, north of Market Street in that area. I mean, it's the most ideal location. What's missing? Well, someone has to put in a grid pattern street system there, put in some services, and and it's even zoned properly. And that could easily have four or 5,000 people just very quickly within a few years living there. It's not that there isn't that. The development community isn't behind it. The city isn't putting the infrastructure in. Okay, so why isn't the development community behind it? Because there isn't the infrastructure there. The city is making it very hard. The city, um, I mean, they destroyed Center Venture. Essentially, they took away its budget. They removed its incentive packages. You have to do what you do with Waterfront Drive. You've got to put a new street in down there. Those blocks are oversized. You've got to put in the water and sewer. You've got to put in parks. You know, you've, you've got to put in the kind of amenities that every city that's renewing its downtown does. It, you know, you've got to put in transit. There's a plan for rapid transit. There's rapid transit lines that are supposed to go right through there but that stuff has to happen and none of that is happening we're not planning or making the infrastructure investments and it's not that we're not spending money I, we, we spend a half a billion dollars on the freeway and on the uh, post office police conversion it would you know a hundred million dollars would probably pay for about all of the infrastructure you would need in each of those areas in the Adelaide Dagmar McDermott area over on the west side of the sort of the yet to be developed warehouse district up, up around Chinatown in that north area and the Negan in area near the CPR station along the waterfront up around McDonald all the way up north of Market Avenue there there is just beautiful waterfront incredible 
opportunities for infill development, but the zoning, the approval process, the city's planning department right now is 40%, has 40% of the budget on a per capita basis of any other uh, major municipal planning department. There isn't even the staff in place anymore. The city has hollowed out its resources and it's it's not getting development ready. So if you're gonna, if you have a choice and you're gonna go and develop in Sage Creek and you're a developer, you have pretty much full control of your agenda and you have very little friction in getting approvals from the city. And if you have to put 5,000 housing units in Sage Creek, you're gonna be taking up an area the size of downtown Winnipeg. You know, on a small subset of that land, uh, if you're a developer, you're gonna find it almost impossible to get the support or the approvals or the infrastructure that you would need. And it's not the city staff are hostile, it's just not enough of them. Uh, and Winnipeg has a downtown crisis is different than its previous ones because it has an infrastructure and a capacity deficit. It has the incapacity to do approvals. Its plans for the downtown center plan has not yet been replaced. There's, there hasn't been an up-to-date downtown plan for 15 years. And so all of the zoning and planning secondary plans are all out of date, which means that you know normally that plan should shortcut the ability to get approval. So if you've got to, like there was one lovely infill development on Bannantyne that failed because there was a debate over two or three stories of height and was basically because the plant standards there in the zoning was, uh, was 20 years old and did not anticipate these kinds of developments. So uh, the whole thing went through six months, two rounds of hearings and appeals on this one little tiny infill project uh, and it failed in the end simply because, you know, as one of the councillors said at the time, if we follow the rules we have, we have to not approve it, but it's really clear the rules are out of date. And those are the same councillors that are supposed to be updating those rules. So th that's the catch 22 situation. It makes me very frustrated and very sad because there, there is the demand for downtown housing. And that's already improved. Every time it gets built, it gets filled up. It gets filled up so fast that it actually inflates the price because those condos, I'll be quite frank, should not be a million dollars. It's a supply and demand problem. And it's not because there isn't adequate, because the demand and it's overwhelming because the supply is so pathetically small. Two years ago, I stood with Les Stetchison as the public safety building was being demolished, which was something that was very precious to him since he had designed it. But there are housing projects that are underway there that have some promise that look as if we're going to get some people living downtown on that piece of property that requires it to be used for public purposes. I mean, that was the original arrangement for the obtaining of that land by the city years ago was it had to serve a public purpose. Is that enough? Problem with projects like that, and it's good it's happening, but one-offs aren't enough. And I can remember when I was dean, it was around 2004 or five, whatever it was, with the Chamber of Commerce, we got a bunch of architects together and, and landscape architects and uh, Mike Scatliff was involved and, and, and I led a design charrette for the downtown and the focus was on residential development. And so we spent three days designing conceptually residential development for the downtown and where it could be fitted in. And I, if I recall at that time, there were like 13,000 people living in the downtown and I think there's about 17 now, that's 20 years ago. So not much has happened. I mean, there's been some spot here, spot there. That design charrette ended up, if I recall, we identified more than doubling the population. I think we were, we thought we could find place for 25,000 people in, in just a three-day charrette, for gosh sakes. And that's, you know, you're working with empty parking lots. And it's not like the conversation hasn't been happening. That's 20 years ago. Um, we had that conversation and we presented it and, and lots of interest and the Chamber of Commerce loved it. And But here we sit today, continuing with that 
dialogue. What can we do in the downtown? And I'm absolutely believe in, and as Glenn points out, there's lots of employment in the downtown, lots of really good things and entertainment center, all of that. But it's missing that fundamental foundational piece, which is people living there that give it that added vibrancy and, and create the necessary population to support all of the other services and activities that then draw other people down. Um, as it, you see in any other European city, the people from North America come, love to come and visit because it's a a downtown that's vibrant. And there was that downtown plan done. There's one in 99 and, and I think there's some update, but as Glenn says, that's all so outdated. There needs to be what is common practice here, which are area plans. Then you take the broad downtown area and you focus your planning effort on that. And it's context driven. It's detailed in terms of the kinds of uses that should occur where, but it's not zoning. It's not Zoning doesn't lead it. It's about what should happen in, in the context of the particular area and the broader context of the downtown. And then you set design guidelines in place for future development, and then you do broad approvals for development uh, based on that and not on zoning that tends to be dated the day you write the zone. That's a real issue. We need to approach it differently. And, and as Glenn said, we need to invest in it. If Winnipeg wants a downtown that, in fact, is very different from what it is now, then it needs investment from a planning and design perspective. It needs investment from infrastructure. And it needs investment with people's will and, and electing politicians and uh, who are supportive of those broader big visions. Because in the absence of those, it will be more of the same one-offs here and there, which are kind of nice and interesting, but they won't do the job that's required. What's rather remarkable about Winnipeg is everything that's hard to build in a town town that most cities want, baseball parks, arenas, entertainment complex, a human rights museum, an art gallery, a concert hall, colleges, universities, theaters galore, uh, national parks, everything that's hard to build uh, is built. I mean, you've got every cultural, sports, entertainment, educational facility that anyone's ever thought to put into downtown. What you don't have are two simple things. You don't have a good way to get around the connections, the walkability, the streets are not well maintained. There isn't beautiful, dense grid pattern streets. The grid pattern streets have been blown up and you don't have housing. You, the two things that are the easiest things usually for cities to build that you rely heavily on the private sector, not on public dollars to do, is missing. So I'm optimistic that this conversation, because of our varied history, is coming into sharp focus. And I'm, I'm hopeful that we're going to be talking a lot about housing connectivity and walkability in our downtown. And as soon as the conversation gets there, Winnipeg will be an international leader in downtown renewal. All the pieces are there. We're just missing the imagination, the leadership, and a little bit of, a little bit of yeah, elbow grease right now. Thanks so much to both of you for applying your intelligence and planning experience to helping us to figure out what we need to do next. Thank you. I'll be in touch. What are the three of us getting together for a beer here now that the podcast is over? <laughs> Glenn Murray was a Winnipeg City Councilor for nine years and Winnipeg's mayor for six. He was an MPP in Ontario's provincial parliament for seven years. Murray moved back to Winnipeg three years ago. He is currently the co-owner of an urban planning business here in Winnipeg. He joined us today from Toronto. David Witte is the former Dean of Architecture at the University of Manitoba and the co-owner for 20 years of an urban planning practice in Winnipeg and most recently for eight years, the Provo and Vice President Academic at Vancouver Island University in Nanaimo, British Columbia. He spoke to us today from Basel, Switzerland. 
You can listen to Prairie Design Lab on Apple and Google Podcasts, on SoundCloud, and on Spotify. Thanks to my University of Manitoba Faculty of Architecture collaborators, Jason Chan, Jason Shields, and Brandy O'Reilly. You can find all 46 episodes of Prairie Design Lab at prairiedesignlab.com. I'm Terry McLeod. Thanks for listening. <laughs>